You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, Episode 68, Congress's Olive Branch Petition. We last left the Continental Congress a few weeks ago, having authorized the Continental Army and appointing its top commanders. Having shipped Washington and company off to war, Congress continued with its work overseeing the prosecution of the war. On June 27, 1775, Congress reversed its position on having Ethan Allen and Benedict Arnold retreat to the south of Lake Champlain. Instead, it authorized them to go on the offensive and invade Canada. Three days later, Congress formally adopted Articles of War for the new Continental Army. The articles were pretty standard, banning bad behavior or desertion, and requiring officers and men to obey their superiors. Stuff like that. I do have a link to the original articles on my blog if you do want to check them out. Congress authorized attempts to form alliances with Indian nations in order to prevent them from allying with the British. Around this same time, Congress received and condemned Parliament's Restraining Acts, which barred the colonies from engaging in any trade with anyone outside the empire. In short, Congress was getting everything on a war setting with Britain. Even so, many delegates still hoped to end the war peacefully through negotiation. On July 5th, Congress adopted yet another petition to the king, this one known to history as the Olive Branch Petition. Again, my blog has a copy of a link to the full text of the petition if you want to read it. This work was primarily that of Pennsylvania delegate John Dickinson, although Benjamin Franklin, John Jay, John Rutledge, and Thomas Johnson also served on the drafting committee. No one from New England served on this committee. I also mention that several sources and textbooks indicate that Thomas Jefferson drafted the original version of the petition. I have found no basis for this assertion. Jefferson did not sit on the draft committee and did not even arrive in Congress until several weeks after the draft committee had been formed. And when he did arrive, he immediately set to work on the Declaration on Taking Up Arms, that I will discuss next. It seems that some books are confusing the drafting of these two documents. As I said, the Olive Branch Petition was primarily the work of Pennsylvania delegate John Dickinson. While Dickinson had earned some Patriot street cred for his letters from a farmer in Pennsylvania years earlier, Dickinson still clung to the idea that the colonies could remain attached to the mother country if only Britain would allow the colonies to control their own internal taxes. Dickinson's views were pretty radical back in 1767 when he first penned those letters. By this time, even though his views remained pretty much the same, he sounded almost like a Tory. The petition itself avoided a long laundry list of the Parliament's objectionable acts over the years. It stayed short and to the point. Things between Britain and the colonies had gotten crazy, and now a full-scale war had started. This was the result of all the terrible stuff ministers were doing in the king's name. It then humbly requested that the king use his authority to tell his ministers to respect the rights of the colonies and stop all this nonsense so everyone could get back to running an effective empire 
full of loyal, thriving subjects. The petition still clung to the fiction that the king really was on the side of the colonies and that pesky parliament or corrupt members of the ministry had somehow tricked the king into letting them deprive the colonies of their sacred rights. The petition implored the king to step in and settle everything by supporting the patriot view on taxes and colonial rights. It's not clear to me if anyone really believed that the king was being duped by his ministers. In truth, clinging to that fiction helped maintain their own fiction that they were not engaged in treason. It also gave British authorities a way to step in and create a negotiated settlement in such a way that it would not cause the king to lose face. The petition itself only highlighted the divide in Congress between those who accepted they were at war and those who cling to a hope to negotiate a compromise. The New England delegates considered the petition a waste of time. John Adams and Dickinson got into such a dispute over the petition that they stopped speaking to each other. Even so, Adams and just about everyone else in Congress signed the petition. It didn't commit them to anything and simply demanded the king give them their rights. It evinced no view that the colonists would ever compromise on the issue of taxation or their right to create their own colonial legislation within their colonies. Even so, many delegates considered it a waste of time, but there was no use in creating bad blood with the moderates over a refusal to sign it. Along with the petition, Congress included an Address to the Inhabitants of Great Britain, which was drafted by Richard Henry Lee, Robert Livingston, and Edmund Pendleton. Congress knew that the king had refused even to receive the petition of the First Continental Congress. Probably anticipating that the king might treat this new petition similarly, the Second Continental Congress hoped that the address would help build popular support for their cause in Britain itself. In the past, British commercial interests had effectively lobbied Parliament to abandon taxes and other colonial policies that had caused problems. Some in Congress hoped, perhaps, they could get some local dissenters in Britain to help further the cause of the American colonies. Like the petition, the address made clear that the colonies were not seeking independence. Rather, they sought to return to the way things were between Britain and the colonies in the early 1760s. It noted that colonists were denied fundamental power to legislate for themselves or have basic due process protection. The coercive acts and the military occupation of Boston were only making the relationship worse. Parliament's valid trade laws over the colonies profited Britain enough to justify the military and administrative costs that the British government incurred. Imposing additional taxes would only destroy what was already a highly profitable system for both sides. Congress clearly aimed this address at the commercial interests in England that it hoped would side with the colonies against Parliament. Congress sent the petition and the address off to London in the care of Richard Penn of Pennsylvania. It then moved on to other business. But if the petition and the address were not already a futile exercise, John Adams helped make sure that they were. Although Adams, as I said, signed the petition in an attempt at colonial solidarity, he saw it also as a danger. 
he feared the king might agree to the petition, bring an end to the hostilities, and then let Parliament continue on taxing and restricting colonial rights. Adams had decided the time was right for independence, though he was not proclaiming it very loudly yet. He did not want such rhetoric to scare off the moderates. Adams wrote a letter to Massachusetts President James Warren. It discussed his frustration with debate over these documents when they really should be fighting a war. He expressed his hope that the king would reject the petition. He called the petition a, quote, measure of imbecility, end quote, and called Dickinson a man with a, quote, great fortune and piddling genius, end quote, who was wasting Congress's time with silly distractions when they would be better focusing on writing a constitution. Of course, someone stole Adams's letter in transit, and a Tory newspaper in Boston published it. This revealed to all that at least some in Congress were not serious about pursuing a negotiated peace. It also helped solidify the animosity between Adams and Dickinson, and confirmed the view of many in Congress that Adams was uncompromising and kind of a jerk. The day after approving the Olive Branch Petition, Congress turned to debate over its declaration on the causes and necessity of taking up arms. Congress had drafted the declaration at the request of General Washington. The original drafting committee consisted of John Rutledge, William Livingston, John Jay, Thomas Johnson, and Benjamin Franklin. The committee, as you might note, had almost the same makeup as the one for the Olive Branch Petition, except for the addition of Livingston and the absence of Dickinson. Rutledge worked as the primary author of the first draft, which Congress rejected. We don't have a surviving copy of the draft, so it's unclear what Congress disliked. To fix the problem, Congress decided to add two more delegates to the draft committee, John Dickinson and newcomer Thomas Jefferson. Again, though, no one from New England sat on this committee. Now, Thomas Jefferson had just arrived in Congress to replace Peyton Randolph, who had returned to Virginia. Jefferson already had a good reputation as a writer based primarily on a summary view of the rights of British America, which Jefferson had written the year before while still serving in the House of Burgesses. The First Continental Congress had relied on that document as they were drafting their Declaration of Rights and Grievances. Beyond that, though, Jefferson was a relative unknown. He had served as a minor member of the Virginia House for a few years, but had not done much to make himself well-known. Jefferson also was not from a particularly prominent family in Virginia. He owned an inland estate away from the wealthier Tidewater region. His wife was a distant relative of the more prominent Randolph family. And whatever his social standing, Jefferson had a good reputation as a good writer and dedicated patriot. With that in mind, Congress added him to the drafting committee. Now, Jefferson based his first draft largely on his summary view. I'm guessing he borrowed liberally from that or other documents since he reported his first draft of the 13-page document the next day. There is unfortunately no existing copy of that first draft, but many delegates said they found it too combative. Jefferson had spelled out many of the atrocities and infringements on American liberty that led to the current state of war between Britain and the colonies. So Jefferson submitted his draft to the committee, 
and John Dickinson began picking it apart, finding the language far too strident and combative for his liking. Eventually, the committee got tired of arguing and told Dickinson to go work on Jefferson's draft and bring it back to the committee later. Dickinson made substantial changes to the language, softening it down, and making explicitly clear that Congress was not seeking independence, only protection of its long-held rights. Jefferson, many years later, noted that Dickinson only kept the last few paragraphs of his original draft. In fact, Dickinson kept Jefferson's general outline and some language throughout, but definitely made substantial changes to most of it. The final document, in the end, received nearly universal approval in Congress. Even John Adams spoke approvingly of it. Congress printed copies to be distributed throughout the colonies and to be read to the soldiers in the Continental Army. In preparing to go to war, Congress concerned itself with one other major source of power, the Native American population. The Six Nations of the Iroquois Confederacy had favored the British over the French in the wars of the prior 100 years. Generally, though, they preferred to remain neutral. Now, with Britain and the colonies going to war with one another, Congress hoped to encourage the Indians to stick to that neutrality. Congress's address to the Iroquois was simple. They outlined the basics of the colonial dispute with Britain and suggested that the Iroquois simply stay out of it. Congress feared British agents would stir up the Indians to fight against the rebellion, and Congress simply wanted to make sure that did not happen. The Address to the Six Nations, which there's a link to if you want to read the original on my blog, sought to open a dialogue with the Iroquois to ensure they would stay out of any fighting. So with the petition, addresses, and declarations all complete, Congress turned to some more practical measures, at least as Adams saw it, toward prosecuting the war. Washington was by this time hard at work trying to create an effective Continental Army. Already Congress was struggling with how they were going to support that huge standing army that needed food, clothing, supplies, and ammunition. Congress further realized that fighting would almost certainly spread beyond Boston and could envelop all of North America. There was no way they could afford to expand the Continental Army to defend the entire continent. Congress decided to follow Massachusetts's example. On July 18th, Congress approved a call to form Minutemen units in all of the colonies. Essentially, they were putting the militia on high alert everywhere so they could respond to a British attack or invasion anywhere. Minutemen would drill regularly and be ready to act as needed. In some sense, though, Congress was really playing catch-up here. Most colonies had already put their militias on high alert. Even Pennsylvania, which did not have a tradition of a citizen militia, had formed a militia army months earlier and had been drilling and preparing its forces for a potential fight. Congress also quickly found itself overwhelmed and unsure how to control the new Continental Army. They had reasonable confidence in George Washington, their new commander-in-chief and a former delegate. But the fear of standing armies and their threat to civilian rule pervaded their thoughts. Without an executive branch, Congress had to maintain its own civilian oversight of the Army. Congress retained all authority to commission officers. While Washington might make recommendations, 
Congress often appointed leaders that Washington did not want. It frequently made choices not on military ability, but to ensure fair representation of each colony or to provide benefits to friends and relatives. Many successful field officers like Benedict Arnold quickly realized that battlefield victories did not necessarily lead to advancement. Armchair officers in Philadelphia who could get the ear of a powerful delegate had a much better chance of promotion. As a result, Arnold remained a colonel, while men in Philadelphia received appointments as generals. Even some generals grumbled about their appointments. Major General Charles Lee, third in command of the army, still wanted to be commander-in-chief. General Heath had become the superior of General Thomas in the Continental Army, even though Thomas had been Heath's superior in the Massachusetts Provincial Army. But for the most part, this grumbling remained limited to letters to friends. Everyone wanted civilian control to work, and officers did not want to be seen publicly as seeking more power for themselves. In addition to appointing officers, Congress actively involved itself in the day-to-day affairs of the Army. It expected regular reports from Washington. Also, many other officers liberally corresponded with members of Congress on a wide range of military issues. Congress set up committees to deal with the variety of ongoing military matters. Congress also created a formal medical department for the Army. Clearly, if there was going to be fighting, the soldiers were going to need medical care. And as I mentioned last week, Dr. Benjamin Church became the first Surgeon General. Congress made clear from the beginning that it would not simply create an army and set it loose. Even placing congressional delegates among its top generals was not enough. The history of Oliver Cromwell, who started as a member of Parliament and ended up taking control of Britain and tossing out Parliament, remained in the minds of many congressmen. They wanted to keep the army on a short leash, ensuring that it would always remain loyal to Congress and accept the continuing authority of civilian leadership over the army. Another issue for Congress was that it hoped to improve communications in the colonies. The unofficial committees of correspondence had proven useful, but there needed to be a better system for sending messages around the continent especially now that there was no British oversight of a postal system. Now, fortunately for America, the man in Britain who had worked on the American postal system for many years was none other than Benjamin Franklin. As you may recall from earlier episodes, Franklin had lost that post a year earlier after the ministry exposed his revelations of Governor Hutchinson's letters to the Patriots in Boston but Franklin well understood the existing system and could continue to manage it. Congress made Franklin the new postmaster general for the continent, and Franklin would collect a $1,000 annual salary and not do a whole lot more with the job. He remained a delegate to the Continental Congress, and that was taken up most of his time. He appointed several local postmasters and hired his son-in-law, Richard Backey, as his assistant. The following year, Backey would take over for Franklin as the Postmaster General. Late in July, Franklin also began circulating ideas for Articles of Confederation. Now remember, the Continental Congress really had no legal authority for its existence or anything that it was doing. It needed a set of rules, guiding principles, and restrictions on its power if it wanted to continue. 
Franklin had been pushing for this sort of confederation for decades, going back to his support for the Albany Plan of 1754. His proposed articles called for making the Continental Congress a permanent body to promote the common issues of defense, safety, and welfare across the continent. It also called on colonies to make payments to Congress based on their population, primarily to support the war. Although Franklin circulated the idea, the moderates in Congress recoiled at the prospect. Supporting such a measure could be seen as supporting a permanent independent government to replace Britain. Members were not ready to go that far yet. As a result, though delegates discussed the matter, they decided not to have any formal vote in this session. Congress would continue to run on an ad hoc basis. The final issue on Congress's agenda that summer was Lord North's conciliatory proposition. You may recall that back in February 1775, North had sent a proposition to the various colonies to end all colonial taxes by Parliament. Instead, Parliament would simply issue a demand for money to each colony and allow the local legislature to raise that money however it wanted. Now, this proposal had gone to the various royal governments in each colony. The ministry did not acknowledge the Continental Congress nor any of the provincial congresses that had taken control. All of the colonies had pretty universally rejected the idea of giving Parliament a blank check to demand as much money as it wanted, whenever it wanted, for any purposes it wanted. That just seemed like a bad idea to everyone. Even moderates like Dickinson could not support this idea. So the Second Continental Congress took it upon itself to reject the conciliatory proposition and send the response back to Lord North on behalf of all the colonies. Congress had decided that any peace would be on its own terms, not that of anyone in London. Two days later, on August 2, 1775, Congress adjourned for the remainder of the summer, planning to resume its work on September 5th. Next week, I'm going to turn south and take a look at how the southern colonies reacted in these early months of the war. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now They even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, welcome back to another American Revolution podcast. 
book recommendation. In today's episode, the Continental Congress made its final push for a peaceful settlement with Britain. At this point, just a short time after Lexington and Concord, some delegates were ready for an all-out war for independence. Others still seem to think that the fighting is just going to show Britain that the colonies are serious and that Britain will come to a reasonable compromise. Over the summer of 1775, Congress also gets down to putting in place some of the basic structure they will need to run a war and a government. Now, I hope most of you find these legislative episodes interesting. I have gotten some feedback that my going on about legislation and committees and political debate can get a little boring, at least compared to the episodes that describe battles and military maneuvers. But I really want to provide a good overview of everything that affects the progress and movement towards independence. The military plays a big role, of course, but politics and Congress play a crucial role as well. The men of the Second Continental Congress, and they were all men, are who we think of as the Founding Fathers. They set out the political and philosophical justification for revolution and independence. Now, John Adams was one of the most important members of Congress. By the summer of 1775, he clearly was in favor of independence, but not willing to push Congress too quickly, as he still feared that the southern and middle states might bolt and leave New England alone to face Great Britain. Now, despite his success in politics, John Adams never really seemed like a natural politician. He was never a particularly likable guy, and he did not seem to have the natural affinity to get along with others, like his cousin Samuel and many other politicians did. Even so, he became a driving force in the movement toward independence, and of course played a very prominent role in Congress, effectively acting as Secretary of War for much of the Revolution. So with that in mind, I want to recommend a good biography about John Adams. And there's probably none better than David McCullough's book, simply called John Adams. McCullough published his book in 2001, during a time when historians were beginning to rediscover Adams. For many decades, Washington got most of the attention, of course. Next to Washington, focus was on Jefferson primarily since he founded what became the Democratic Party. Adams's key role as a leader in the Continental Congress seemed to take much more of a back seat for historians. McCullough's book and several other works have made Adams's role more prominent again. McCullough's book covers Adams's entire life, growing up in Massachusetts, the defense of the British regulars at the Boston Massacre, his other work as a lawyer, his role in the Revolution, and as, of course, the second president of the United States. Adams lived a long life after leaving office, which also left us a treasure trove of letters and other documents where he justifies his own importance in the formation of the United States. The author, David McCullough, is probably one of the best-known authors and lecturers on American history who is alive today. He has written at least a dozen books over the last 50 years, almost all of which have been bestsellers and award winners. His other book from the same era, 1776, is also an epic must-read for anyone interested in the Revolution. I suspect that that book will also be a recommendation of the week at some future time. Although McCullough is in his 80s now, he is still active and has another book scheduled to be published next year. 
that one will cover the settlement of the Northwest Territory. If you have not already read McCullough's book on Adams, I consider it required reading. Used copies are available everywhere since it was a bestseller many years ago. You can pick up a copy on Amazon basically for the cost of shipping. Of course, as always, I have links on my website, www.amrevpodcast.com. And remember, if you order the book through my link, or even if you buy anything else from Amazon after clicking through on my link, you help support the American Revolution podcast. Well, that's it for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast.